and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're Glad so this happy morning, happy to be continuing to a series that we started we last week. How amazing it just is a few to short lessons Jesus. talking about everything Enjoy pointing to Jesus. Um, just everything in the season, everything in life, really. Uh, everything points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And um, like I mentioned last week, we talked about it last week. We'll be talking about it this week. Next week will be kind of our Christmas service, and then we'll, we'll pick it up for one final lesson. Um, between Christmas and New Year's, and then be gone, but uh, be done with this this series and move on to something else. But the kind of the premise that this is built around, the idea, the question that this is built around is is wonder and the idea of wonder and and do you ever wonder about things, right? And and as kids, um, you know, we wonder the coolest things, right? Kids now they just wonder about the coolest things. They ask the most amazing questions. It's so fun being around kids and talking with kids and having interactions with kids. Um, I absolutely love being around kids. I have a blast with it um, all the time. And, and it's just, it, it's funny to see the things that kids just can't figure out, right? They can't figure out, especially around Christmas time, they just can't figure out how everything works. They're not really sure about how everything works. But it's funny, too, that with kids, a lot of times, when not all the time, but a lot of times, they're just kind of content to be and live and, and experience whatever they can't figure out, right? They don't know how the fat guy in the red suit gets down the chimney. We don't even have a chimney, but I don't care. As long as there are gifts underneath that tree, as long as there's something to open up on Christmas morning, like, who cares? I'm cool with just wondering. I'm cool with not knowing. And then other times, kids aren't so cool with not knowing how something works, and they ask you why 50 times. You know, like, Daddy, it's hot. Why? Well, because it's summertime. Why? Well, because there's a changing of the seasons. Why? Because God made it that way. I don't know, you know, and then parents, you realize real quick how little we know. Can I hear an amen from any parents now that the kids are out of the room? Yeah, we just don't know, right? And, and we were kids once, and then, and then we grew up, and we got older, and sometimes we got wiser, but old wonders, sometimes we figured out, and, and old wonder leads often to new wonder, and, and some mysteries in life we figure out, but sometimes some of the things that we figure out just cause, causes us to find new things to wonder about. And then we start wondering about kind of more serious, we might say maybe more serious things in life, like wondering about, wondering about jobs, wondering about careers and, and, and home life, right, and, and relationships and, and politics and, and our kids and, and the future and our kids' future and all of these things. And, and some of that wonder, if we're honest, some of that wonder leads to fear, doesn't it? And sometimes the things that we wonder about actually comes from fear, but then there are other times where the things that we wonder about actually lead to courage, and, and they can lead to discovery and, and new ideas and new pathways forward. And some of the greatest breakthroughs and some of the greatest discoveries in our world have actually come in, in the arenas of, of, say, science and medicine and other areas of life, other arenas of existence. And they, they all come from somebody at some point wondering about something, wondering how to solve something, wondering how something works or how something is put together. Now, Christians believe, we believe, that God actually gave us this ability to wonder. We actually, actually believe, I believe, that it's one of the greatest gifts to imagine possibilities, to imagine new pathways forward, consider new horizons. And whether you believe in God or not, whether you have it figured out or whether you have questions, nobody can deny that we all as humans have the incredible, incredible capacity for wonder. And, and, and a lot of times, as we wonder and as we try and solve things and figure things out and unravel the mysteries of life, what we are handed from our families, or sometimes maybe it wasn't necessarily handed from us or to us in, in, in terms of what was taught, sometimes it was things that we actually caught 
some things that we experience, some things that we lived out. It provides kind of this framework for how we view the things that we wonder about. It provides us this kind of window, and we look through this window out on life and everything going on, and, and what we're taught and what we experience creates this way, this window through which we see the world. And, and through what we've been taught or what we have lived, we wonder about things. And through what we have experienced or what we have been taught, we then decide what things are important and what things are not important, what things are ideal and what things are painful. Through our window, we wonder about what things are wrong and what things are right. We find measures that we use to, to wonder even about ourselves or maybe about other people, about our own self-image and our worth and, and who we are. And, and this window, this, this idea that we're talking about here is called sometimes a worldview. It's, it's called a framework for life, and it defines the values and the players and the measures that, that cause us to wonder about life, to cause us to have these different things in life that we're trying to figure out. And so as we wonder about some things, and we live with some things, and we struggle even with some things, there's, there are times that we figure some things out, and, and when we do, the way that we see the world, our window through which we see life and process life, it, it's like it gets shifted a little bit. It gets refocused, maybe we could say, and, and we begin to see life in new ways. We begin to view events and relationships and people and circumstances through new ideas and new frameworks. And, and with new perspectives, sometimes those, again, those mysteries that we've solved just bring new mysteries, which causes us to have new wonder about things. And it seems like life is just never really ending of wonder, and, and we never really have all of the answers. And one of the reasons that we have wonder is that our worldview doesn't give us all of the answers to life. And you're thinking, well, I'm here in a Christian church this morning, and what Jared's going to say is, well, the Christian worldview will give you all of the answers to life. And if you thought that's what I was going to say, you'd be wrong, because even the Christian worldview doesn't give us all of the answers in life, because people believe in God, and they put their trust in Jesus Christ, and we still wonder, why are there tornadoes and earthquakes that cause such pain and destruction and havoc and damage all over the world, right? Why do children get sick? Why do children sometimes pass on? Why doesn't God answer some of the prayers that we pray? I wonder if there's something I could have done differently. I wonder if there's a way I could have phrased it differently, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? This is a great question. It's something that we all wonder about. It's something that people ask me about as a pastor, and I'm telling you, I don't have an answer, and then the kind of knee-jerk answer that we maybe got from a childhood version of faith, you know, like, it's the devil, right? Right? That's what we thought when we were younger. Why, does, why do good things happen or bad things happen to good people? Well, it's the devil. It's just the devil. That just doesn't work as we get to, to be older because we know some people and we know some circumstances maybe in our lives or people that we know and, and people that we love, and we just know that there's, that's not the answer. That's not enough. And so we wonder these things, even Christians we wonder these things, but our worldview, our framework, the window through which we see life and process life, we still see all of that, and that worldview is framed, and it's still defined by the idea of a loving God, but sometimes it feels like our worldview doesn't give us an answer to all of the things that we wonder about, and here's the thing. If you don't believe in God, and you wonder how those people who believe in God could be so naive, if you don't believe in God, you still have things that you wonder about. If you leave the idea of faith and try and figure out life on your own, it's not like you find all of the answers. If you don't believe in God, how do you believe that anything in life is meaningful? 
If you believe that we're all a random collection of atoms, how in the world could you ever find meaning to any of the events and the circumstances, the relationships or the emotions or the feelings that we experience in life? You wonder, if you don't believe in a God, you wonder how it's possible for something to come from nothing. And so then there are these wild guesses about multiverses and all of these kinds of things where people are trying to answer the wonder. They're trying to solve the wonder and the mystery that they have. And all of us, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, all of us have a worldview and, and we're all searching for one or we, we either have a worldview or we're searching for one, right? And, and it may not be well defined. We maybe can't come up here and explain it to everybody, but it is what we use to determine what is right and wrong, what we use to decide what's just and unjust or courageous or cowardly or fair or unfair or what things are important or what things in life might be unimportant. And we all, we all wonder, but all of us just maybe wonder through different windows, different worldviews, different perspectives. And this is something else that Christians believe, and we talked about this last week, that God saw us in wonder. God saw the confusion and the pain, and the chaos, and the havoc in the world that was kind of in operation because people had made guesses and guessed wrong at the answers to some of the wondering. And God sent someone into our wondering. God sent someone into the darkness and the confusion and the pain that humanity was experiencing. If we can look at it again in the terms of those windows, that God sent somebody to this side of the window. God sent someone to our side of the window to be a reference point for God himself. God sent someone to stand on our side of the window so that even as we discover things, even as we unravel some of the mysteries of life, or even during the times when we don't discover things or can't figure things out, that even as science upgrades and updates and medicine changes and we make new discoveries about mind and psychology and all of the other things that we are wondering about, that on this side of the wondering, on this side of not being able to see everything that we would still finally know what God is really like. That we, on this side of the window, may not understand how all of the dots finally connect, but we can trust that when they finally do connect, they will look like love, the love of God. In fact, last week we looked at what most historians think is kind of like a transcript of a sermon, and it was this transcript or this letter maybe that was written to early followers of Jesus in the first century. And this, this document was copied and passed around in the first century and survived um, being passed around and, and kept in the church circles. And eventually around the fourth century was included in this collection of all of these documents that the early church used to depend on and, and used to use to govern or guide their beliefs. And around the fourth century, it was kind of put together with a bunch of other documents into this book that we all know as the Bible, but we call this one document in particular, this one transcript maybe, or this one letter, we call it the book of Hebrews. And we're not really sure who wrote it, but whoever the author or the preacher was, they were trying to refocus the worldview of, of Jewish believers in Jesus during the first century. Because the Jewish believers of Jesus were under intense persecution, intense hardship, and, and times were, were just worse than harsh, and people were being put to death and being dispossessed of homes and driven out of their homeland, and it was confusing to them. And it caused them to wonder, did we get it wrong? Did we back the wrong guy? Should we have not believed in Jesus? Was he really, really God's Messiah, God's rescuer sent into the world, God's way of showing us that we could trust God? Did we end up backing the wrong person? And the author of Hebrews is writing to say, hey guys, 
Don't lose focus. Don't lose this perspective. Keep your trust in Jesus. I know things are bad, but here is what needs to happen. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, he tells them, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. And in this one simple statement that we kind of teased out last week, the author does something so powerful. And, and, and we as Christians sometimes, you know, we kind of forget this. And these early Christians even, it seems, had forgotten this. But early on in the very beginning, they understood this. And when he refocused them, it made sense. Because the issue in Christianity is not a theology. The issue, the central thing in Christianity is not a philosophy or a set of teachings. It is a person. Christianity is built solely upon the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the pioneer. He's the one that made the way for faith, and he is the perfecter of faith. He is the foundation of our faith. It's through him. It's through what Jesus' life tells us about the Father that we even begin to trust the Father. And it's through Jesus And it's what he did and what he lived out that fixing our eyes on him kind of helps our trust in God to finally be made perfect. And Christianity begins and ends with Jesus. It just does. And and maybe there's somebody here this morning or maybe there's somebody you know or somebody that you love and there's just this disconnect between the faith that you received as a child or maybe they received as a child and, and the experiences of actual life. And there were some blind spots in life. There were some places and circumstances where you couldn't see clearly, and maybe you came to that point, or maybe you're close to that point now where you said, you know, this Christian way of seeing the world, this Christian idea of seeing the world, of processing life, it's just not working for me anymore. And so people drift from faith. People drift from their faith in religion. And and, and we, you know, this is something that I'm intensely interested in, and and I, I, I study this a lot, I read about this a lot, but we're actually living in a post-Christian America. And there's a lot of times we kind of assume or think that we're living in non-Christian America, like an increasingly non-Christian America. But we're actually in a post-Christian America, which is a completely different big and hairy animal than a non-Christian America. Because talking with a non-Christian audience, the goal would be to tell them about Jesus. But talking with a post-Christian audience, they think they already know about Jesus. They already know about the church. They already know about the Bible. They've already been to prayer meetings or maybe been to Bible camps. But the, so, the reason that so many in America are post-Christian, they used to be Christian, or maybe their parents or their grandparents were Christian, what's amazing when you begin to listen to their stories and talk to them and hear what is going on in their life and in their doubts and in their crisis of faith, it's always something around Jesus, but it's never really anything to do with Jesus. It's about some things that are added to their framework, some pieces that have been put on the window or the context or the surroundings. You know, it's the surroundings or the traditions, or in some cases, in too many cases, it's the people around them that they look through and they get, you know, just kind of disgruntled and and offended and and turned off and, and these kinds of things. But when you dig into a lot of the stories of those who have lost faith, it's almost never to do with Jesus. It's always about things that aren't worth losing your trust in Jesus over. And most people lose faith because life experience doesn't make sense when seen from the perspective they were raised on. Now look, here's the thing. If you're somebody that has walked away before, you know somebody, love somebody that's kind of away from faith now, this is really good news. 
This is really good news. And here's part of the reason why it's great news. Because if you have walked away from this worldview, if you've walked away from this way of processing life and kind of understanding life, I'm betting, I'm sure that when you walked away, you never found a different worldview that was able to fully replace this one. I'm betting if you walked away, you didn't walk away from church and find all of the answers. I bet if you walked away, there are things that you still wonder. There are things you still cannot explain. There are still ways in which you have to curb your inside desires, and you have your own set of ought and ought nots. It's not that you threw off all of the ones from the church. You just adopted a different set on your own. And this is good news. This is good news for anybody that's thinking about leaving, that when you leave, it's not usually about Jesus. It's usually about something around Jesus. This is good news because there's a new way to consider your doubts. Jesus is saying, the author of Hebrews that we just looked at a second ago is saying, if there's anything in you that is causing you to doubt, it may be that your eyes have drifted from the thing that you were always intended to keep your eyes upon and fix your eyes back on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Here's the thing. No perspective that we could see the world through answers every question. Maybe you grew up with a religious childhood, you know, had a childlike faith that really as you got older, it kind of stayed as a childish faith. And then as you ran headlong into life, there were some broken panes in the window that you viewed life through and some things didn't make sense and some things didn't add up. Maybe your perspective and what you grew up with was more about intellect and education and science and only what could be proven or seen through a microscope really mattered. And that became the way that you kind of viewed life and filtered the way that you viewed life. But the best parts of life can't be seen through a microscope, can't be proven scientifically. Things like love and courage, right? Things that we experience that are painful like fear and emotional pain and loss. Maybe you grew up with religious influences, right? Maybe you came from a large Catholic family. That's a big thing, right? To come from traditions of religion. Maybe it was a, a Protestant family. And religion was kind of just this cloud. It was always with your family but never really talked about. Always there as part of your family but never really explored. Or maybe that's all your family talked about. Maybe you grew up in a family of Bible thumpers and, and, and just life just seemed to have a lot. You know, once you got older, life just seemed to have a lot more gray than anybody wanted to admit. Or maybe your worldview got reshaped because at some point in life, you messed up. And you have a regret, right? You have a scar. You have that season. You have that thing. And, and we all do. We all have this. This is the thing. None of us here have gotten out of life unscathed, right? We all do. But when you experienced it, it shook everything. It changes everything. And not only did you break some of the rules that were handed to you when you were growing up, but you broke some of the rules that you have for yourself. Some ways that you thought you would never see yourself. Some things that you thought you would never do. Or maybe it was a tragedy. Maybe it was parents splitting up. Maybe it was something that the doctor said was terminal. Maybe it was financial crisis and nobody you know, came to help. Maybe it was death or disease or divorce or disaster, but it shook you and it left you wandering. And maybe after you were wondering, it led to you starting to wander. And we all want to think that we're bigger than these things, that we can get past these things. And, and kind of as we look out at life and process life, that we would be able to kind of see around these things. And, and we're, you know, we're older, right? We've matured and we hope 
that we're wiser at some point, and that the way that we see love, the way that we view relationships and life and, and purpose and money and, and circumstances, we like to think that we wouldn't be impacted by any of those influences in our past. But it's, it's just not true. And the way that we see life can't help but, but, but be impacted by that. It's shaded and it's jaded by things that we did or things that were done to us. And, and where we can see, this is the funny thing about it, where we can see so clearly how experiences and, and things and teachings and upbringing can affect other people, when it comes to the person in the mirror, right? Come on, anybody ever had a best friend and you looked at him and you looked at her and you thought, man, if she goes through with that, if he goes through with that, if he buys that, if she dates him, I know what's going to happen, right? But then you bought that. Then you dated him. Oh, I was going to leave that one alone. We're going to move right on, right? All of these things that we can see so clearly in other people. When it comes to us and when it comes to the mirror, we can't see how it would affect us. Ever hear somebody's story? And after you hear somebody's story, you think, well, now I understand why they are like they are, right? Now it only makes sense that they would say that, do that, feel that way, right? Maybe you heard the details of your parents' divorce, and maybe you can't necessarily understand why it went as far as it did, but at least now you can see why it happened and some of the events that led to it. Or maybe you hear that your mom or your dad grew up just poor, incredibly, incredibly poor, and now you can kind of understand why they work so much, why they save so much, why they were so afraid to spend at all. Maybe your coworker's so angry and so rude, and you just find out that in their last job, they were let go with no real reason, and you begin to understand, well, now I understand why they're looking out for themselves, and they don't really care or trust the company or the corporation. When we start to see some of the things that kind of frame the window through which other people see life, we can start to understand that their behaviors and who they are and our behaviors and who we are are simply a reflection of what we can see through the window. And their experiences and our experiences shape to a large degree choices and behaviors and responses and language. And that's true of them. That's true of me. That's true of you. It's true of you. None of us get here without being influenced by things that have been said or done to us or done by us or said by us in our past. Now, here's the wonderful thing, since I just pretty much told us we're all messed up. Here's the wonderful thing. Here's the powerful thing. That when Jesus showed up in the first century and started dealing with those people, they were just as messed up as us. Can you turn around and give somebody a high five? Come on, yeah. There you go. We're all messed up. Somebody say, we're messed up. Yeah, we're messed up, man. And Jesus showed up, and his first century followers, his early followers, had the same cloudiness in their worldview, had the same obscurity and darkness making up their worldview and marking up their window. The first century Jewish religious ideas like, if you were sick, then God was mad at you. If you were sick, then God was punishing you. But if you were healthy, then God loved you. And God loves wealthy people, loved the wealthy people more, and that's why they were wealthy. But if you were poor, or if your children were poor, or maybe you had a disease, then God was cursing you, and God was angry with you. They grew up with ideas like God's favorite people are the Jews, and God hates everybody else. But the thing was, Rome was occupying Israel. 
And Rome was there walking their streets, and they couldn't figure out, and there was wonder there. Like, why are we God's favorite people? But Rome is here. Rome is controlling things. And so what do we do to retain God's favor? That's why John the Baptist's message was so powerful when it came. You guys remember John the Baptist showed up on the scene right before Jesus, and he started telling people, hey, repent. You're all horrible people, and you need to change. And like tens of thousands of Jewish people went to hear John. Like, they're like, this is great church. You know, they make us feel so guilty at John's church. We love that. And why did they do that? Why would they be so willing to go out there and be berated and told that they're awful people? Because they had this idea that we're horrible people, and that's why God hates us right now and why Rome's here. So if we can stop being horrible people, maybe God will kick Rome out. So they like John's message. And then the afterlife. They had so many different ideas of the afterlife and, and what would happen after one died. And, and it was just all confused. All of their worldview was messed up and jaded and shifted and jumbled and all of these things. And so God did for them what ultimately then God did for us. And God sent someone to their side of the frame. And John was there and John remembers and John tells us, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, but yet somehow also the Word was God? And then into our confusion, into our pain, into our obscurity, into the things that we wonder about and get confused about and get offended at God over, God sent the Word to become flesh, and the Word made His dwelling among us. God sent someone into the world, not to connect the dots all in, in a way that we want them to be connected, but to serve as a reminder to us, as a beacon of hope to us, that this is what God is like. This is who God is. And you can trust that even though life is confusing, and even the way you're processing life isn't making all the sense that you want it to make, you can trust that God, in fact, loves you, and God is for you. See, that's the Christmas message, actually. That's what Christmas is all about. And toward the end of his public career, Jesus tells the, the disciples, tells the guys that they're going to celebrate this Jewish festival of Passover in the city of Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem was kind of like the epicenter of, of Jewish festivals and celebrations. But Jerusalem, for Jesus and for his 12 closest disciples, Jerusalem was dangerous and so Jesus says, we're all going to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. And from the narrative, from the story, we can see it seems like they're beginning to wonder, okay, maybe this is the big showdown because we think Jesus is going to come into Israel, be the king, set himself up as king, kick out Rome, kick out all the corrupt power players, and then he's going to start and launch this new kingdom. So maybe if Jesus is telling us to go to Jerusalem when it's dangerous for us to go to Jerusalem, we don't know why else he would be going to Jerusalem other than to have the big showdown. But see, before this, they were always kind of in secret. Before this, their movements without crowds were always in secret. And then when they were in public, they had to be surrounded by crowds because the, crowd, the crowds would protect them from those that wanted to arrest Jesus. And, and so they went to Jerusalem, and they didn't know it, but this was going to be their last Passover together. Just hours after this last time, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas and, and arrested and eventually and ultimately tried and crucified unjustly. But during these few hours, when they're celebrating Passover together, it was an amazing few hours with Jesus. And Jesus began to challenge them and began to remind them about some things. And then Jesus does this thing with a servant thing and washing their feet where he gives them a picture of himself that he wants them to reflect as they live out their relationships with each other. And they wouldn't understand it all till later, and they were so confused at this time. And again, John was there. 
John, who wrote this, this verse here that we read here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in your New Testament part of your Bible, John was there. John heard it. John saw it. John actually ate the meal with Jesus. He was there that night, and, and, and it's so fascinating to read the account of a man that was with Jesus. And John tells us that in those few hours, on that last night when they were together as a group like that, that Jesus tells them, I am leaving. And they look at Jesus, and you can tell again from the story and the way that they're talking with Jesus, they don't understand that. They can't really figure that out. We didn't even want to come here unless it was a showdown. And the crowds were all on our side today, Jesus. Remember the triumphal entry and all that kind of stuff? Jesus, the crowds are for us. It's the perfect time for the showdown with everybody, and you can be the king. But now you're telling us that you're, you're leaving? And if you leave, well, that makes it dangerous for us because the crowds are going to follow you, and we're going to be on our own. And once we're without the crowds, we are going to get arrested. We're even meeting in a secret location in this room that nobody else knows about Jesus. What do you mean that you are leaving? And so Peter, who always seemed to speak up at the good times and in the bad times, Peter speaks up to Jesus and he says, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? And Jesus replies back to him, where I am going, you cannot follow now. Somebody say now. But you will follow later. Somebody say later. And Peter's thinking, that's not what I asked. I asked where, and you're talking about when. I want to know where you're going. And so Peter's like, well, fine, I'll just go with it. Let's shift the conversation to when. So Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. We're here, and it's the showdown, Jesus. We're here, and you're going to go out one against many. You are leaving us. This has to be the time when you're going to confront the power. This has to be the time you're going to be the king. And so, you know, there's at least a couple of fights coming up, Jesus, you know, once with the corrupt Jewish people and then once, once with the Romans. So, Jesus, why can't I go with you right now? I'm ready. I've got my sword here. I'm good, right? I know how to shoot a gun sideways. So I'm, I'm ready to go with you, Jesus. I want to see things go down. I want to be part of it, Jesus. I'm tired of being insignificant and being a fisherman. I'm tired of being run by Rome. I'm tired of the, the guys in Jerusalem being in cahoots with the people in Rome. I'm tired of being insignificant and not doing anything. And Peter's own failures and Peter's own hopes that he had placed on Jesus, but Jesus had never placed on himself, the way that Peter thought Jesus should act, the way that Peter thought Jesus should behave and what Jesus should say and what Jesus should do, it had formed Peter's window through which he was processing all of the events that were going on. And it was Peter's own hopes and his own experiences and his own dissatisfaction with religion and his own disappointment with the direction and the outcomes in life that all of, after all of those things, he says to Jesus, why can't I go now? I will die for you. And Jesus kind of looks at Peter, and you can tell that Jesus is a little bit patient with Peter because Peter's special. And Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Will you really? You really mean that, Peter? And you know, Peter's thinking, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And Jesus just rocks his world. He says, very truly, I tell you, very truly, Peter, very true. This is going to happen. You know me. I don't speak empty words. You know me. I can't lie. You won't be able to avoid this, even though you're going to want to avoid this. When this happens, Peter, you're going to look back and remember that I told you it was going to happen. And even though you don't want it to happen, it's happening right then. When it happens, 
Very truly, I tell you, not only will you not die for me, Peter, you're going to disown me. Peter's like, no. And Jesus says, and it gets worse. You're not just going to disown me once. You're going to disown me three times before the rooster even crows. And everybody in the room, the other 11 disciples, they all get discouraged and they get troubled by this because Peter's the bold one. Peter's the brave one, the guy that's up front. And if the bold one is going to chicken out before the rooster crows, I had to just pause for that wordplay. Thank you, Ivan. If the bold one is going to chicken out, if the bold one is going to chicken out before the rooster crows, thank you. As somebody who speaks up here every week, I just want a little acknowledgement for that line, okay? So just, if the bold one, one more time, one more time. If the bold one is going to chicken out before the rooster crows, <laughs> what hope is there for the rest of them? Because change, if it's going to happen, it's going to be painful. Change, if it's going to happen, it's going to be dangerous, and it's going to be risky. And if Peter can't do it, they're not sure that they can do it either. And John remembers all of this. John remembers the feeling and the mood in the room, and, and John tells us what Jesus then turns to all of them and says in the very next verse, Jesus tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Hey, wait, 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 Jesus, you're leaving and you're telling us that we can't go with you. You're telling us that even Peter won't be the kind of guy that you need him to be if you're going to revolt like revolutions we think should be done. This is feeling a little bit like the end of everything, and you've been talking about dying a lot lately, Jesus, and don't be troubled. Don't be troubled, really? And then John remembers that Jesus says something next that should have offended their Jewishness to the core. These were the people of the creator God. These were God's favorite people, remember? They believed the right things about the right God. And what Jesus said next had to be so hard for them to swallow. Had to be so confusing and so unnerving and, and so against what they had been taught to think and understand about the world and about God and their specialness and about their uniqueness. This was a moment in which the window through which they processed the pain in their world got shifted. And as an answer to their troubled hearts that Jesus gives right here, it has to fall short on, on so many different levels because it in no way made things clearer. It just made things confused. It was so confusing. And Jesus tells them, you guys believe in God, right? Well, yeah, we believe in God. We're Jewish. We believe in the one God, the one true God. Jesus says, well, if you believe in God, believe in me. You believe that somehow, in some way, that God's got things in control where all you can see are things out of control? Well, yeah, we believe that. Okay. Believe in me. You believe in God? You believe in me. And no, you can't come with me right now. And no, right now, I'm not going to give you the answer that you want or the answer that you think that you need. But the way that you have put all of your trust and hope in God since you were little boys, put all of your trust, put all of your hope, put all of your confidence in me. Like, wait, Jesus, you telling us about God is one thing, but you claiming to be equal with God, that's a whole different ballgame. 
We're not sure if we can follow you there. We actually want you to explain God to us a little bit better, but for you to say this it's so confounding, and, 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 and you know, to, to sit here tonight and tell us in our confusion and our wondering that if we believe in God, we should believe in you. For Jewish people, Jesus, that's blasphemy. They should have gotten up and walked out because at that point, they did not know who Jesus was. And Jesus, because he's Jesus, he doesn't really clear things up. He just make things, makes things more confused. And he tells them, my father's house has many rooms. In the King James, you probably remember this if you grew up in Sunday school. In my father's house are many mansions. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you, right? Growing up, again, we think, well, yeah, Jesus is going to heaven so he can build us all a lot of mansions. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Like when we get to heaven, we're all going to have a bunch of mansions, but then there's no nighttime. So do we need bedrooms in our mansions, right? And then when I was 10, I used to wonder, do we need bathrooms in our mansions? Like, what's going to happen once we get there? Like, what are we going to do with all these mansions? Like, for eternity, we're just going to visit each other's mansions and talk about upgrades and become heavenly house flippers. Like, what in the world is going on? Jesus, you know, you, we think you're talking about the afterlife. We think you're talking about what's coming next. And, and their, their understanding was a lot different than our understanding. But what they understood and what we should understand is that Jesus was talking about a world beyond this world a life beyond this life. And he tells them, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you. Mm, this is starting to sound a little ominous, Jesus. Like you're talking about the afterlife. You're talking about going to the afterlife and then coming back into this life to take us to the afterlife. That's starting to sound a little scary. We thought we were going to be victorious. You're talking about dying and then telling us you're going to take us to die with you. Like this is some kind of suicide pact here. What's going on? We don't know, Jesus. And I'm going to take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And Jesus is still Jesus. And he doesn't clear things up at all. He just make things, makes things even more confusing. And he tells them, guys, you know the way to the place where I'm going. To which they would have said, and you're probably thinking, no, we don't. No, we don't know where you're going. Peter just asked you where you're going, and you switched the conversation to a matter of time. And so Thomas speaks up. Anybody remember Thomas, one of the disciples? He had a nickname. What was his nickname? Doubting Thomas. Before he was doubting Thomas, you may not know this, but he was actually states the obvious Thomas. And Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? We can't put the coordinates in our GPS. We can't type in an address. If we stopped at a gas station and even picked up a paper copy, we don't know the destination. So how in the world could we know the way? And what Jesus says next is so beautiful, and it's so powerful, and it's so fundamental to the Christian faith. And, and it's even famous. You've heard what Jesus is about to say next. You've heard it before. But here's the thing. It always seems to get kind of ripped out of its context when it's quoted. And one of the sad things is, is that the way that this passage has become famous, unfortunately, it's been almost weaponized. It's been used as a statement by Christians to exclude everyone else. It's been used as a state, statement by Christians to judge and condemn everyone else and to tell everybody just how wrong they are and how right we are. But what's clear from the context, what's clear from the conversation is that Jesus isn't trying to keep anyone out. 
Jesus is trying to open the door wide and tell them all to follow him where he is going. Jesus is giving an explanation of himself. He's trying to explain his life of who he claimed that he was and what exactly he claimed that he had come to do. And what Jesus is telling them is the destination at this point isn't even really important. I'm not even trying to talk to you about where you think you're trying to end up. You all have these different ideas in your brain of what I should do and what I should bring about and how I should work in your life and how I should make things come out easy for you. That's what I'm not talking to you about. But no matter where you want to go, this is what I want to tell you. You know the way to get there. And we think, no, Jesus, we don't know the way to get where all of us want to go in moments of pain. In moments of wondering, in moments of unanswered prayer and tragedy and crisis, we wish we knew where to go. And Jesus is telling him, them and Jesus is telling us, you do know where to go. Jesus, we don't know the way to get there. You do know the way to get there. And Jesus answered, I, I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. My life is the way. Who I am is the way. The way that you see me reacting to circumstances around me, that's the way. The way that you see treating the people that are around me, that is the way. I and the way, who I am, what I am. This isn't another framework to add on to what you already learned when you were younger. This isn't another piece of information to add to what you learned in college. No, this is not another philosophy to add on to what you've learned in life. It's so much better than a lecture. Jesus would say, it is my life. I am the way. And if you wish that you could get to God, if you wish that you could have access to God and access to God's wisdom and power and love and grace and mercy, but you're not really sure how, don't get so caught up looking out a window at things that you can't really see very clearly. If you want to know the way, stop looking around you and just look at me. I am the way, and I am the truth. I am as much truth about God as you can handle in this life. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I have come to offer you. I have come to bring you life, eternal life, the kind of life that is worthy of lasting forever and ever and ever and ever. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am and the life. And then he tells them, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it wasn't some kind of ha-ha statement like, ha, I'm the only one putting his hand out to stop anybody else. It was an invitation that no matter your pain and no matter what you know or don't know, no matter your education, no matter your status, no matter your history, no matter your brokenness, no matter how you were raised, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have not done, it does not matter. But you cannot get to God your own way. But here's the beautiful news. Everyone can get to God my way. It was not a statement of exclusion. It was a statement of invitation and equality that Jesus Christ stands as the way to get to our heavenly Father. And he loves and he shows grace and he has mercy for all of us. I don't care if you're old, young, got to be really careful here. 
I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you did last summer. I don't care where you grew up. I don't care who raised you. I don't care who didn't raise you. I don't care what regrets you have, what pain you have. I don't care about the things you've had to ask forgiveness for, the things you've never had to ask for. I don't care who you vote for, who you don't vote for. I don't care. Jesus stands as the way, the truth, and the life, and his invitation is open to one and to all. And here's the thing that Jesus would say to us. This truth about him doesn't remove all of our wonder. It doesn't solve all of life's mysteries. It doesn't give you all of the answers. But it does answer a primary wonder. And it does solve a primary mystery that we all have. What is God like? And does God like me? We all wonder that. When we go through pain and when we go through circumstances that just don't make sense to us, like why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this? What is God like that this would come into my life? And Jesus would stand and point our eyes to him and just give us that as an answer, that he is the way and he is the truth. He is the life. And when we go through things in life that we do ourselves and regrets that we have and pains and words and actions and behaviors and we wonder, does God like me? Does God care about me? Could God possibly forgive me or love me or show grace or mercy to me? Jesus again stands at the pathway, the entrance to that road to get closer to God. He stretched his arms wide and he died on a cross. He said, fix your eyes on me. And Jesus is the answer to these two basic questions that we ask. What is God like? And does God like me? And Jesus goes on and he tells them, he tells us, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Uh, Jesus, we, we, we're pretty sure we'd remember that. We, we're pretty sure that we would know if we had seen the father. And what do you mean from now on? Like, Jesus, what's about to happen that hasn't happened yet, that once we see it, we will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I have seen a heavenly Father who made me and who loves me. See, all of this was before the cross. We have the privilege and the opportunity to stand on this side of Calvary, and all of it kind of makes sense, but to them in that moment and that night, it's so confusing, so confusing that from now on, from now on, we could know that we have seen God. Philip, and I love this part in verse 8, Philip looks at Jesus and he says, you know, you're telling us that we've already seen the Father. We should know that. We should remember that. Philip looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, uh, show us the Father. Sorry we missed it the first time. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And one of the reasons that I love this is because Philip's telling Jesus, like, can you just get to the point? Can you just cut to the chase? Because it's a lot of the way that a lot of the, it's the way that a lot of you are feeling about my message right now, right? Like Jared, can you just get to the point? Can you just cut to the chase? You know, Jesus, great message. Loved when you called Peter a chicken by talking about a rooster. You know, sorry Judas wasn't here to hear that part. He could have given us two cents. You know, but Jesus, can you just show us the Father, please? We just want to know what God is like. We're just trying to figure out if God likes us Jewish people again. What God? What is God like? Does God like me? Help us understand how to make sense of all that's going on around us. Jesus, help us understand and make sense of the pain and the confusion and the fear, the uncertainty 
that we feel. Help us sort out the confusion of our worldview. Help us understand the broken parts of our life and our circumstances because the things that we were taught just don't seem to be true anymore. The things that we have believed about the Messiah and about life and about God, we're just we're kind of starting to doubt it all because it's all been shaken so much. It's all been shifted so much by what we've experienced these last few years. The things that we have done to make us wonder if we are in fact disqualified now, like maybe it's too late and we'll never be God's favorite people again. Maybe it's too late and God will never like us again. The things that have been done to us to just make us so desperate for a why. Jesus, can you just show us the Father? That will be enough. And Jesus answers to Philip, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, I've been with you. I've been around you. Philip, hello, it's me. Look at me, Philip. Stop looking for answers over there. Stop looking for answers over there. Stop trying to find another frame of reference, another worldview. Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And to them and to us, what Jesus is saying is that your heavenly Father wants to be seen by you. That God does not want to be a mystery to you. Life may be mysterious, but God never intended that you should have any questions about his heart and his mercy and his grace. God doesn't just want you to know what he's like. He wants you to be curious about what he's like. If he is the creator of everything, then he is the reason for everything. And so if you are looking for a reason, start with him. And if you want to see him, Jesus would say, look at me. Look at me. That in spite of all the mystery, in spite of all the wonder, in spite of all of the things in your life that have caused you to wander, that your heavenly father wants his heart his character, his nature, to be so clear to you that you trust him. And Jesus would say, and so he sent me. He tells them, believe me. Everything else is secondary. Believe me. This is where clarity comes from. Not what you were raised with, not what you learned in school, not what you've experienced so far. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe me. And then I like this part because it's kind of where I am. And Jesus knows that even in these 11 or 12 men that are around him at that moment, Jesus knows that some of them are doubting what he's saying. Just like some of us go to church and attend church, and yet at different moments and seasons and circumstances in life, we doubt what God says to us. And Jesus says, believe in me, believe in what I say, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves, which tells me that Jesus is okay with your doubts. Jesus is okay with you having wonder. Jesus is okay with you having questions. But all he does is ask you to consider what has been done for you before, what he has done for you before, what he has said about you before, what he has declared over you so unmistakably. And you don't just have to hear his words You don't have to, as some people are taught as they grow up in in Christianity and other religions, just have faith in faith. 
Just believe in believing. No, he's okay with your doubts. He knew that future generations would need something more than just words. And so he says, believe at least on the evidence. And this is so powerful to me because I'm telling you, there, there have been times in the past when some people and some groups of historians doubted that there was ever a Jesus, said there was no actual Jesus, but no credible historians anymore. That ship has sailed. Nobody that's credible as a historian doubts Jesus. No secular historians or religious historians, nobody den- denies anymore that Jesus existed and walked this planet. And here's what else historians cannot deny and do not doubt. That uh, just, just weeks or maybe months after Jesus lived his life and died, that this thing called the church was launched into the world. And what no skeptics can explain away. What they cannot deny, at least not believably, what no doubters have any good answers for is why scared and confused men and women in the first century went out into the streets of Jerusalem right in front of Roman soldiers and began to declare that Jesus was in fact the Lord and the true king over all the earth. That Caesar was not the true king, that no other government, no other power was the true king, but that Jesus Christ was in fact God become king to humanity. God on full display. And they marched into the streets and they declared it boldly. Peter that had been a chicken. John who had doubted. Thomas that would have said he doubted more. Even James, the brother of Jesus, came out and he said, no, no, no. When Jesus was first walking around teaching, I didn't believe the guy. He was my brother. I thought he had been out in the sun too long. At one time, I took Mary, my mother, to go and bring Jesus back home because we thought the boy's gone too far. But after Jesus' death, James saw something that he could not deny, and his doubt in his own brother evaporated because he claimed to have seen a risen Jesus. Think about this. What would it take for your brother or your sister to convince you that they're the Son of God? Right? Now think about it. James is the brother of Jesus, and yet after Jesus rose from the dead, he began to declare Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is our Heavenly Father, the one Creator God on full display so that we can trust His heart and His love and His mercy and His grace. And to us, James would declare that He really was the way, the truth, and the life. And these scared men and women After Jesus rose from the dead, after they saw him die the most horrific and shameful death possible, just weeks later, they walked into those streets and they declared that they had seen him alive again. What would give them that courage? What would make them so willing to die for what they claimed to have seen? Why would they be willing to lay down their lives and give up homes and be driven from their homeland to persecution if it was a lie? If they did not benefit from it at all in this life, unless, unless they had seen something that made them not afraid of death anymore. Unless they had heard something and seen something that promised benefit in a life beyond this life. And they would say to us, and the author of Hebrews would remind us, that it has never been about the words of Jesus or just the teachings of Jesus. It is about the person of Jesus. And no matter your confusion, and no matter your pain, and no matter the unanswered questions, don't lose faith in him. He stands unmistakably at the center of all historical 
historical figures, and he declares that he is the way to see God, the truth about our God, and a life that can be lived with our God that you cannot find anywhere else. And so fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In the words of last week, these men and women in the first century fixed their eyes on the risen Jesus, and they never took them off, and they changed the world. And you're here because of what they saw. And you're here because of what they believed about Jesus. And Jesus' point was this, and they would echo this point to us if they could talk to us also. Jesus' point was this. If you look past me, or if you stop short of me, or if you take your eyes off of me, you may miss the Father. And if you wonder what God is like, Jesus would say, I am the way, but you can know that. I am the way to that life that transcends this life. I am all the truth that you need to know about God in this life. You'll know and you can see when you turn your eyes to me. And we wonder, we question, we doubt, we struggle, we wrestle. And living this Christian life is not always easy. And having a Christian life view or worldview will not solve all of life's problems. It will not answer all of life's questions. But as we wonder, he understands that we wonder and he's okay. As we wonder and as we struggle with questions and doubts, he's not mad and ready to permanently revoke our membership to the club. And as sometimes our wondering leads to wandering, he knows our story better than we know our own story. He knows our reasons better than we know them. He waits and he stands. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you've ever wondered and then wondered, we come back to that same question that we asked last week at the end of the message. What was your faith fixed on before you lost it? What was your faith fixed on before you lost it? Was it fixed on a church? Jesus would say, no, 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 don't look at the church. Look at me. Is your faith fixed on the Bible, a book, the accounts written therein, and then you went to college and somebody came up with a fact that you had never heard, gave you a book to read you had never considered, science maybe called some of the things you believed into doubt, and you have some questions that you can't find a good answer to? Jesus would stand and he would say, no, 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 don't look over there. Look at me. Look at what I've said to you before. Look at what I've done for you before. Look at what you have felt in my presence and felt when you called my name. Maybe your faith was fixed on a person in the church. Maybe your faith was p- fixed on a mentor, an elder, a pastor, or a priest, or whatever it is. And, and, you know, just all of these things get in the way of Jesus. And Jesus would tell us again, no, 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 look at me. Look at me. He that has seen me has seen the Father. You don't need to look at anyone else. You can look at me. Was it maybe the idea that bad things shouldn't happen to good people? That's not a Jesus idea. Hello. In Jesus, the worst thing happened to the best possible person. That idea didn't come from him. And to all of the things that we wonder, and to all of the things that we experience where we, we can't imagine that God would be in it, and we can't understand how God would allow some things to happen, Jesus invites, invites us to simply look at him and know that no matter the confusion, no matter whether we can see the dots connect or we can't, that we can trust the heart and the love of someone who will ultimately bring everything to completion. Jesus answered, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. 
And if you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.